0: Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, delicia and we are back with part two of my conversation with cinematographer and filmmaker Hans Charles. Hans is probably best known for his work on the award-winning Netflix documentary, 13th, directed by Ava DuVernay. And during the latter half of our conversation, he explains how this opportunity came to be. We also get into how his career has evolved since and his views on diversity or the lack thereof in Hollywood. And lastly, we talk about his efforts to grow as a parent to his two children. So without further ado, you know what to do.
1: Please enjoy. It's fascinating when we discuss sort of like gangster culture. Um, it's it's interesting because then when, when Cats Atlantic, when they did cross the line, they was going for broke, like. You, you, you're you lucky if you escape with your life. But to me, like I said, what was fascinating is like, oh, so all I have to do is not start a fight or say I'm sorry or say I wasn't involved. So the other thing I learned is not to be in people's business. So I didn't have to be. So you could always say, well, he's not in that. I just mm-hmm. didn't be in people's business I, as long as I was not nobody's business. And you could even be messing with somebody's girl like because. Atlanta culture was so sort of misogynistic and sexist that they blamed the girl for you messing with somebody's girl. So you mess with somebody's girl. You said, oh, my bad. I didn't know. I didn't know she had to do. OK, no problem. Let me go deal with her. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It wasn't like New York where cats didn't care. Like, nah, you mess with my girl. It's a rap. You know what I mean? It's, it was, so it was. a. It, it was an easy place to kind of just whatever. All this to say. But I did find it difficult to figure out how. And it was just me. It wasn't. I don't think it was a location. it was me. I was just having too much fun in Atlanta that I had to leave mm-hmm. um in order to pursue my career um in films, especially at that time there was no there was no movies being made. there was none of that the stuff that you have now that that has developed in Atlanta the last ten years was not there in the mid nineties. um so I ended up in California um uh, working for Edmonds Entertainment as an intern um, and I actually again, this is where the lack of sort of corporate understanding. And the ability to take advantage of corporate spaces hurt me because even though you know the people Bridget Davis I work for Sheila Duckworth a lot of people Patrick Ian Polk um, they were all in the office at the time um, even though a lot, a lot of people were trying to help me get a position as an assistant part of me really didn't want to do it because I did I just never had that corporate bone I didn't have that I had the polish. I just didn't want to use it. I wasn't interested in using it. I just felt like that's not really where I want to go. So I almost kind of talked my way out of not getting like not getting the interviews for, you know, they could just tell, like, I don't think he really wants to. Like, if he wants it, we'll we'll set him up. But I don't think he wants it. And I went back home um, and, you know, just trying to kind of figure my way, because I think I really was interested in being on set in the production side, not the executive side. And. You know, so I'm home for that summer, trying to get something going, hearing about productions here and there. And then in in September, the production happens. I'm a PA. I'm driving around in, you know, in lower Manhattan, like picking picking people up, dropping stuff. I was was something that Spike Lee was executive producing a short film for for the Fi channel. We have a late night um, and we were in the Bronx. We have a late night. We have a late call the next morning. So normally we're supposed to be on set at eight. We have a late call noon and part of what i was doing as a pa was picking up this van driving you know gear and people into lower manhattan next morning is a tuesday 9 11 happens Mm. you know and that derailed like that derailed whatever trajectory i was going in terms of new york production that completely derailed that um because a lot of the independent production in new york completely stopped and only like bigger directors, like the 25th hour, I think like a year or two after was one of the first productions shot in New York after 9-11. Um, and it, I didn't have the connections to get onto those bigger sets, especially after 9-11. So then, I, you know, I ended up getting married, moved to New Jersey, just working a regular boring nine to five job. And I still wanted to go to film school. So I applied to film school and decided to attend Howard University, graduate film program, moved to D.C., um, and then um had you know had this class with Bradford Young and started sort of, you know, interacting with him. And so he's inviting me to he had just was leaving DC moving to New York. He had literally just moved to New York like a week before I got down to DC. So he was back and forth between New York and DC. And I'm so now interacting with him, I'm back and forth from And I'm already back and forth because my family, even though we moved down there, we, because we still had family up north, we were going, I was going, we were going back home every weekend, essentially. Mm -hmm. You know, that those first three years, my wife almost never spent a weekend in DC. She would, every weekend, she just packed the car and head, go to her parents' house in New Jersey. So that sort of started, uh, you know, a slow road, very slow road of, you know, just doing stuff in new york working with you know cast from nyu um cast from columbia slowly slowly like making my reputation as a camera assistant um and just grinding that out for years and years and years and then you know a couple films go to sundance i paid my way to go to sundance and grinding out and then i ended up meeting ava through like brad had a job with ava doing this documentary and and that's the first time i met her and You know, we shot the whole documentary in New York. And then she was like, I got this film called, you know, Middle Nowhere in L.A. If you fly yourself to L.A., I'd love for you to work on a crew. So I did that. We did Middle Nowhere. And then while she's in post-production for Middle Nowhere, she, you know, the the whole uh, Affirm thing is popping. And she was like, hey, like, I hear you, like, because I'm a grad student and I would bring speakers, you know, from my sets. I would like, hey, you know, I'm a grad student. You should come speak to the film students at Howard. So... She was like, "I hear you doing that. Like, can we start showing some of these affirm films?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, let's set that up." So then I, I became like an affirm captain in DC, and so like DC was like an official stop on the on the whole affirm thing. So every month, I'm talking two three times a month. I'm talking to Ava on these big calls. So we just got to know each other that way, and then um, and then um, she has an opportunity. Then like you know, middle of nowhere goes to Sundance, and it becomes a big deal. And then she's like. You know, she's coming back to town. To DC. I remember she came back to town, to D.C., and I picked her up from the from the train station and we're talking, you know, a little bit about her future and, and things like that. And then another time she came back to town for the correspondence dinner and she was like, I got this new documentary that I'm doing that that, that Netflix is interested in. But no, 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 that's not what happened. She comes back to town. is like, I'm doing this documentary for ESPN, 30 for 30. Um, i watched this, a bunch of, half of it needs to be shot in DC. Do you think you can shoot it as a DP? I was like, oh yeah, you know, I was nervous, but I was like, I think I can do it. And so we got the camera, shot it. She loved it. Loved what I did. Um, then she comes back to town. It's like, I'm shooting this documentary. Um, I think you can do it as a cinematographer. I think you, I think you got it. She's like, I'm probably going to hire another cinematographer as well, but I'd like for you to be one of the cinematographers. I was like, absolutely. So that's, that's how 13th came about. Um, yeah. So she comes, they literally, they came to DC they, and by then, by then I had, by the time she asked me to do 13th, I had done two seasons as a camera operator on the game. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that doing that did was that it took me out of the realm of, of, uh, camera assistant. And then now I'm like, you know, doing a television series as an operator. Um, so that's the reputation I have. And then, then she asked me to do 13th. So that's like the first, one of the first major, um, DP credits that I get was doing, um, first major one I got was Venus versus for ESPN through her and then doing 13th. And then, yeah, the the first stop on, we we knew we were going to do multiple cities, but the first stop was DC. So it was kind of cool. I got to set them up with local PAs, you know, like my local expertise that kind of came into play. So we did like five to 10 days here in DC. Um, And then we went to San Diego, San Francisco, um, New York, a couple other places. And then, yeah, we did 13th. And then, we shot it and then I didn't hear nothing about it for like two years. So I'm like a blabbermouth. I'm like, "Talk, yeah, I did this. I, I'm like, I'm doing Ava's next film, uh, the next film that is, comes out for Ava. Like I shot like I'm like and they like really trying to keep under wraps, cutting it. And because I, I think the more they cut they it, because at first it didn't start as a big thing. It was like, oh, we're going to do this little project that uh, nobody's going to see. And I think as they were cutting it, even while we were shooting it and as they were cutting it, they realized how big it was going to be. So they're like adding these components to it and they're like excited. But I don't really know. But I'm every time I go to L.A., I stop by the array offices. Every time I go to L.A., I stop by the array offices at the time they're just the affirm offices. Um, they were in Sherman Oaks at the time. Now they're in Koreatown. And so I just stop by, say hello. Blah, blah, blah. Sometimes we do doing like a firm business. Um, hey, I'm going to pick up these posters. I'm just, I'll just pick them up. You don't have to send them to me or, you know, he, you know, just a little business that I just connect. And I, and one time I remember stopped by I was like well let's see what you, let's see what you're editing and I remember uh, the editor um, I'm forgetting his name right now and I just saw the layout and I was like man what? and I, I you know I'm selfish when are you guys gonna finish this thing like I need this thing for my reel like I need people to know that I'm a you know um, and then when it came out I just couldn't believe how big it was I it just it blew my mind that it was as big as it was because you know I would I I when I shot that film you know in some ways it's probably like my most courageous my most reckless. I just threw caution to the wind. I didn't even mm-hmm. think about, it. I, I literally, and I, I have to ask her, I have to find a time to just, I'm going to have to find a time, to be like, Ava, hey, let's go, let's go have dinner for an hour. And I could just ask her these questions. I'm always talking about these and these spaces. And I never, I haven't asked her about all the times I've told the story. I was just trying to impress her so I could shoot more stuff for her. Like, that's so all That I-
0: was, that was going to be my question. You yeah. know, some people, they get on these projects and they're like, this is something amazing. This is going to be life changing. And others I see was, it as a launching yeah. pad for other reasons, I, right? Building relationships, yes. all of that. So it sounds like you didn't have the foresight to see that it was going to, be, to be as big as it was.
1: I just wanted to show her that I'm a good cinematographer and that I know what I'm doing and that, you know, all of her future projects, she could, you know, consider me. That's all I was trying to do. So I'm throwing, I threw caution to the wind. I just, you know, and that wasn't reckless. I was, it wasn't that I wasn't skilled. It was like, I feel like I'm a little bit more sort of a little bit more aware. I'm just more aware. I'm not as reckless. I'm not as like, Oh, who can, who cares what happened? Let's just do that. Oh yeah. Let's just do that. Let's just move the camera any old way. So there's a, there's a sense of that, I think in the image. And it's, I mean, it's, it's very skilled. Like it's, it's clearly there. I, I put together everything that I knew and I tried different things that I'd never tried before um, and didn't think about it. So much of it, I didn't even think about. It. I wasn't even aware. Um, it was just instinct and gut and just, you know, I'd studied certain images and I'm just going to do this, you know. And now I'm so like super, I'm hyper aware of what I'm doing. It's just in some ways it's sort of annoying. It's like I'm, I feel a little handcuffed. And I have to thank her for that because I think it's it, it's to this day probably the most freeing I've been in a documentary. I haven't been as free in a documentary. And and it's weird because it's because people have seen 13th, like they, they feel like they want to look, but you know, she freed us as cinematographers on that film. Mm -hmm. We just could do things that I have yet to see, you know, another director, you know, really allow me to do. So it's curious, I'm curious, I've never talked to her about the doc. Like, so I I kind of want to, I would love to have a revisited conversation about the doc. So, um,
0: she, so you're you're us- you're using this as a medium to impress her, right? Just doing your thing.
1: But you I you to- know though, I know uh, the reason I got the job is because I knew a lot about the prison industrial conference. That's how I got the mm-hmm. job. So I emotionally in, in terms of my energy am very much in tune. And mm-hmm. and I had a brush with with law enforcement in in that way. Like I had a great, you know, that's something that happened to me that that definitely spoke to how insidious the justice system can be. So it it wasn't that I was like, my energy was definitely aligned with the project. Like that's literally how I got the job. Cause she's heard me having a conversation. I was having a conversation with Van Jones and she heard the way Van and I were in, interacting. Cause Van was one of the guests that she wanted that she had been tracking down. And she was like, you know a lot about this. And I was like, yeah, like, I was like, between my personal experience and then me just, I have a, you know, a weird curiosity. and I'm, I've been obsessed with the Koch brothers. And they're moving into the space and they move into spaces very strategically. So it's curious to me, like I've been sort of following down, following them down this rabbit hole because I want to know why they're interested in, in criminal justice reform, because they should they should have no business in it. You know, and it's really because they're using they're using low level crimes. They're using reform of low level crimes to reform financial crimes. Mm-hmm. They want to make financial crimes less. uh the, the price for financial crimes to, to be less. So they they kind of rolled the dice. They, they said, let's just make one big package. So they've they linked themselves with all these groups in order to get low-level drug crimes, nonviolent crimes decriminalized. Because what was happening was because of like methamphetamines and speed, not, no, methamphetamine and speed are the same thing, but uh, the other drug that's been ravishing the country, because of those drugs, now white people are getting locked up because of our archaic drug laws. Like you, there's not a drug problem in black America right now, right? There just isn't like, not when I was a kid. It's not like you walking down the street and cats are high, you worried about every kid getting hot. Like that's not the problem, especially now with de- decriminalized marijuana. The right. drug- We're problems, not,
0: we're we're not, not the, the face of the opioid crisis. We're
1: not the face of the opioid crisis. The face of the opioid crisis is white, is middle white America, right? And so guess what? The laws did haven't changed. <laughs> the laws haven't changed. So now, you know, Lily person is getting caught up. Lily white woman gets caught with something and a, and a, and a cop decides to whatever. And now you in court and now the judge's like, I have no choice but to throw you in jail for five years. Like I can't, I don't, nothing I can do. I don't want to throw you in jail for five years, but now I have to, because right. we need all these drug laws. So the, and, and our court system, everything, everything about our court system has been fueled by us fining people for drugs, us, all those fines that's, that has been feeding. Our, so we have to continue to feed this court system. I can't play for my clerk. I can't, we've moved. The public is not paying for that anymore. We we're paying for this through feeds and seizures. So we got to keep that going. So I, you know, I knew that, right. And I was interested in that. And that's one of the w- ways that I got the job. Um, So I obviously was tuned in artistically, but yeah, what well, the, 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 the sheer, sort of avant-gardeness if people if people would refer to those images as of that from my work is a lot of that was trying to like like see hey but I know how to do and it didn't work.
0: So it so it takes that that long to come out, right? All this time.
1: Yeah it took for like
0: (laughs) everybody is talking about it when it when it comes out. Um it it takes on a life of its own award season hits. What were you thinking? What, what was your feeling? I had, no
1: thinking. I had no thinking, no feeling. I was just like, I did not know. It was a whirlwind. I had no, it was a complete whirlwind because I don't even know what it means. Like, what's funny is the effects. I still feel the effects of that nomination. And that nomination is still opening doors. So I can't even tell you because I had no context for what it meant. I really didn't. I thought, oh, we did good work. But yeah, of course you get rewarded. Like, it was, it's interesting work, you know? I had no context that you could spend a lifetime and never get nominated. And then what people do to get nominated, you know? So I was just the luckiest, blessed person ever to have been the, on the project to have gotten nominated. It's just that simple because it easily could have not gotten nominated. And it's been difficult for all of us to get nominated again, and then to get to to win. You know, you realize how hard it is. So, like for a little bit after, like I was like trying to like, okay, I'm gonna pick projects, I'm gonna do. And now I'm just like, nah, I'm just I don't care. I'm just gonna try to do good work. I'm just now I'm just like I'm just gonna do good work. I'm gonna have fun. I want to do things that I really want to do that I'm passionate about. I want to work with people that I find interesting and that I want to work with. And I don't do things that I don't want to do that's what I'm doing now, you know, because like so chase nominations. I just, you just can't, it'll drive you crazy. It'll make you a terrible person. And I'm insisting that one of the themes of my professional career is to be a pleasant person to work with. Mm-hmm.
0: So you, you brought up how the nomination opened a lot of doors though, which I think is a really good segue because black people have a lot of us very strong opinions about the major awards shows. Right. And feeling like they don't honor us until they're backed into a corner or until it's a focus of DEI, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. So you you hear these narratives and these conversations, like we don't need their awards. We don't need their affirmation. We don't need their acceptance. But I think a very real piece of this, which you touched on is that that is still the dominant system. And that if they do put their stamp of approval on you in some way, It does create new opportunities.
1: It does, but I I agree with the black folks to say that we shouldn't honor it. Mm -hmm. I do. I I do get frustrated by people like you know I deserve this Oscar. I didn't like I because I think you have to understand the Oscar voters, the Emmy voters. You talk about tens of thousands of people, right? And for the most part, they're they can't possibly view the work. They can only even vote on the work. That becomes popularized. That's why people want, you know, if it's whoever is the the distribution company to like if it's Warner Brothers or Netflix or Hulu, whoever, to make sure you put up the billboards, to put them in the the variety ads, to do all that because the voters a lot are influenced by that stuff. They're actually influenced because it's very difficult to watch every single thing in the award season. It's very you'd have to, it becomes your full-time job for you in order for you to do it. So it's a popularity contest. And the flip side of that is. There are more voters who have friends who have obscure things that get nominated than you have friends like, OK, yeah, it's Issa Rae, but I don't know no Issa Rae. I'm a 65 year old white man. I don't know. I've never seen Insecure and I'm not going to watch Insecure. So I don't care how good that episode was unless like my friend says is the most amazing episode ever. Like you have to watch it or even if you don't watch it, it should win something. Unless my friend says that, I don't care what anybody says. So it's not a matter of it being good or fair.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm infuriated by <laughs> award season generally. But at the same time, if I see someone that has risen to the surface, a Black creator, and they are nominated or they they do win an award, I'm all for accepting the award giving the thank you speech and utilizing and leveraging whatever doors open yeah. because you happen to strut through. But I agree with you in that it's not a place that we should be investing in looking
1: for acceptance. It would be amazing. Like, for example, like, like we know Beyonce shouldn't have gone to the Grammys. And she, like she should have been like, Nah, I'm not going. Like the power was in the fact that she had been boycotting. And now that they're going to give her a award, be like, Nah, I'm not going. Like, even if you give it to me, I'm not going to go. Because the message it would have sent, it would have sent a message to the Cardi B's, it would send a message to the hers, it would have sent a message to everybody else like, yeah, yeah, they're going to sweat you when they need you. But when you really need it, like, I shouldn't have to reach this point to then have to protest. But Beyonce shouldn't have to reach that point. You know what I mean, and then to make a big stink, and then to bring attention to herself—that's not fair. That's a burden. I'm not no Beyonce apologist, but that's a burden onto Beyonce. Why does Beyonce have to protest mm-hmm. to get the Grammys to pay attention, right? So that's my thing. Is like, first of all, my core, my theme, right? My theme in life has been why am I fighting to be in spaces where people don't want either don't want me to be or that I don't feel comfortable in any way because it's not really my lane. So f- to fight to be in this space it's like uh, the, i'd rather just stay at home and like you know, s- you know smoke a cigar and drink a whiskey mm-hmm. Like, what am i doing like what am i doing as the only person of color in this space you know what i mean um obviously if i'm the face of a project and the network is going to put a push behind it because it, it be who it helps me to brandish my brand but i'm not going to throw the tantrum when I'm not in it because and because the way I'm going to protest is like I'm not going to support you because I know shit is golden mm-hmm. like I got I got the swagger so like oh you ain't f- with me I ain't f- with you even I don't need to make a big deal about it but I think that works best when we do it collectively mm-hmm. because like I said New York City why is New York City boring because New York City is boring because not enough black people are there anymore why is DC getting wet because not enough black people like wherever they're not black whenever you take black people out of the equation it sh- gets boring and that's the same with any like, look, oh, white rappers want to take over. the Go ahead, because ain't nobody going to listen to rap no more. The minute all the wh- rappers are white, ain't nobody going to listen. The minute the minute is going to be all R&B singers are white. OK, fine. Guess what? Guess what is not going to be the dominant music form anymore. This.
0: But, you know, I think what's difficult is when you do have artists that reach the pinnacle of success or they're having a moment. And we see that with black directors, black actors entertainers all of that producers it, it can be become all consuming and, and i think it's rare for somebody to reach that level and then say i'm gonna take a stand right like I, no i this is not what i want i don't want to be the only person in the room and now that i've gotten a seat at the table i'm rejecting it for these reasons um it, it's i think it's really hard for people to reject tokenization so with that being said do you think we can reach a point of collectivity or we all summarily reject what is white supremacy still within the entertainment, uh, complex, right. Entertainment industrial complex. Do you think we'll reach a point of collectivity because people who do reach that level of success and breakthrough don't really want to stand up no. and, and ruffle feathers.
1: And this is, is hard. It's, it's very difficult to do it on your own. Um, it's hard to blame somebody who doesn't do it. Because what's interesting, particularly, I would say I can't speak about the music business, but particularly in the film business, the person that you are, and talk about people of color that you are looking to, that you think has broken through the ceiling. Well, from their vantage point, they're they're bunched up against the ceiling. Right. Right. So you're like, yo, help me up. You've reached you broke through the ceiling. And they're like, yo, I'm I'm like bump against the ceiling, yeah. You know? Like, and and I'm looking up and there's like, there's 20 more floors way above me that I can't get to. And you talk about pull you up, Where up to where? Where are we going? Because there's nothing up there. for Like, I can't get past. That's the thing I learned. For a long time, I, I used to get frustrated in this business. And I, you know, like you use the podcast, I apologize to a lot of people. Because I felt like, yo, you not put me on, you not collective, da 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 Not realizing that, that we, we look at people thinking they have made something and this business is so insidious that they haven't. And I've learned to be okay with that. Like, you know what? You aren't, it may seem like you're way ahead of me and you are, but you're just, your new vantage point is not a vantage point of power. And you I
0: think that unless, unless you really know some of the finer points of a lot of these major deals that we see, people don't realize that there are often white people who have their hands in the pockets of major black creators because they've put up the money for, um, whatever this new venture is and they, they own a large stake of it. And that's the piece that often is not covered in the media. Um, to, so it, it speaks to what you're talking about and that you look like you've made it but you still have to answer to somebody. And no, not somebody you, can, you're you answering to people who don't look like us.
1: You yeah. got to ask to do things. So you mm-hmm. want to put a whole bunch of people on? You got to ask. You want this person to get something? You got to ask. Everything you got to ask. So it feels like, oh, you're doing what you want to do. No, you got to ask. All the people surround that person, those people were put there by somebody else. So I've learned to like be a little bit more forgiving. Now, where I'm not forgiving is where people in certain positions have a basic ignorance, mm-hmm. right? Like. They're they want the respect. They want black people to be behind them, but they're ignorant of their own power or they're afraid to exercise the very little power they have um, to benefit people across the board. Like they're just like, OK, I'm going to help this person out, help this person out. But I'm not I'm going to ignore this, not realize that this thing that you're ignoring is very important. You know, one thing I'm passionate about and you can see that Array has done they're doing a the whole thing about, you know, staffing um, films below the line. I've always been passionate. I've always been frustrated by feeling like, particularly, Black producers, and executives out of out of L.A. completely ignore below the line staffing. And you'll they'll be executive producing a Black show or executive producing a show, and there's no diversity on the show. And they're they're a person in charge, and they've done nothing to diversify. And they'll take whatever a line producer says. Oh, I can find this. I can find that. Okay. And they just assume. And whereas. You know, we have always had black craft practitioners in this business, mm-hmm. um, and those, and the, and the dirty secret about craft practicing. When I say craft practitioning, I'm talking about you know your sound recorders, your production designers, your, your uh, set design, your clothing design, your camera assisted people, your gaffers, your electricians. Um, the dirty little secret is. I may not be as qualified to do the job on day one, but literally halfway through the job, I'm qualified because it's the kind of business where you can you, most people learn on a job. That is it's a myth that you everybody takes on the job that they're underqualified for because it's how you grow in the business and, and it's how like people give you opportunities that you have to kind of rise up to. That's the nature of the business. It's rare you get a job where you're over because you you get bored if you start doing jobs, you're overqualified for Correct. So, on a lot of so, when you hear, I've heard stars that will rename them as, you know, their, their names rhyme with Will Smith, um, say that that you know, I, I only want to hire qualified people. That's bull. That's bull because nobody's qualified for the big stuff. It's everybody. Everybody's take a chance on everybody because they want to do something special. Right. So that's but the only people that nobody wants to take a chance on are people of color all the, or women, you know, all of a sudden they're excluded. Well, they're not good enough. This, this bull like you just just get It's the one few things that we do repetition over and over and over and over again. hmm. You know, it's like just like we do it over and over again. It's like it's like snaps. OK, snap, snap that first. Now like you just keep on doing so few things. That, OK, so you can learn on the job. Right. So I have I've been frustrated because I and I know this for a fact. I know for a fact that executives in this business, Black executives in particular, whether they be men or women, whether they be queer or cisgendered or non binary, they tend to not pay attention to below the line staffing. And below the line staffing is a matter of equality and justice because there's a lot of money that's made in below the line staffing. A lot of people have made great middle class, upper middle class lifestyles on below the life staffing. And that's a lot of where their diversity needs to happen. When you there's no point in diversifying the front of the camera if you're not diversifying behind the camera and for far too long. The camera has been staffed, even if it's like racially diverse, but then it's not diverse in terms of gender. Right. It's not sometimes not diverse in terms of age. You don't have a mix of older people, younger people. Um, So there there just needs to be consideration, particularly whatever the subject is in front of the camera. It doesn't make sense to me. A film, a TV show starring, you know, five an ensemble piece of five women and there's no women on the behind the, the scene staff. like like you're making it uncomfortable for your actors. What does that do? That makes nude scenes like impossible. The whole nature of that changes when you if you think an actress would be insecure about having to do a nude scene if everybody on staff was a woman? They'd be like, oh, like, yeah, just put this theta, But it's not like I have a whole bunch of people staring at, you know what I'm saying? That's different. Was a bunch of like 50 year old guys. Like as soon as you step off the cameras, nothing but dudes that, you know what I'm saying? Like that's a different environment and there needs to be a pay attention to that. And the pushback is like, no, you should go for the skill and I should be judging my skill. But you weren't judging your skill. You were given that position because you knew somebody. And a lot of times that relationship is based on your gender and based on your race.
0: And that's a whole other aspect of privilege as well.
1: Yeah. And it, it so it's starting to change. People are starting to be aware and people are starting to understand that they have to take it into consideration. I know personally, I've known people who are practitioners who are pushing back. Like, you know, I'm a guy, I'm losing a job to a woman and I feel like I'm more skilled. But a lot of times it's not, this is the other dirty secret, it's not about your skill level. It's about the energy you bring to set. And for this piece, this is the right energy. And when you when you staff your your production properly, there are lots of intangibles that go right that are hard to put on paper. There's a way that your actors become at ease because you're creating the right environment. It's hard to quantify that. I think it's very, very important, and people sleep on it. And, and 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 the reverse is if you're like, a, you know if you're like a white Irish dude and you want to, you know you're doing a very delicate piece and you want a lot of white Irish guys on staff, like I'm not opposed to that. You know what I'm saying? But I'm opposed to like where we're you know we're shooting you know we're shooting Beyonce and we're talking about her maternal health and then there's not like it's, it's everybody behind the cameras a dude the PA is a dude the camera guy's a dude the, guy's a dude the sound guy's a dude the sound guy's touching you know it's crazy there's so many sound guys and you got like you know the sound guy has to touch you like so why isn't why isn't a woman doing that like if I'm a, I'd be like no I don't want you to touch it like, I don't know you don't touch me don't put this mic on me like I just have a personal space like why can't I have that honored because you don't want your feelings hurt. You know what I'm saying? So it's, 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 it's the first time we're really having this discussion in a way. And what's interesting, the good news is that we generally, there's so much work out there that even though there are some people grumbling, the only people who are truly grumbling, are the people who don't have the skill, because there's so much work out there. If you have the skill, you're not losing out on work. The minute you got turned down for this job, because you weren't, a person of color, you weren't a woman, you get hired for another job. It's not like you sitting at home twiddling your thumbs. If you're sitting at home twiddling your thumbs in this environment, it's because you're not good.
0: And is the creation of more opportunity and so much work due to the rise of streaming Absolutely. and digital content and the other, yeah, digital. the other mediums out there as well?
1: Yeah, it's it's the fact that d- digital cameras burned all this because digital cameras lowered the cost of production and distribution. Mm-hmm. And then and then and that then streaming services could take advantage of that. You know, it's just, it's cheaper to make the, to make the product. It's just, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a simpler, it's cheaper to make the product. It was very expensive to make a show in the 70s. To make a television show, an, an hour drama, a half hour comedy was very expensive. Shooting that stuff on film, processing the film, it took a lot of, of labor to do it. And so only a few people got the opportunity to do it because it was a risk. It was a risk to do it. The risk is much, the financial risk is much, much lower. And now the rewards are much higher. So that's why you could, everybody can create a, if streaming, let's say we had a streaming technology, but we're still shooting on, on, on film. I don't think the, I don't think all those networks would take a chance on Mm -hmm. it, right? Quite frankly, because literally just making something was risky. It's not risky anymore. It costs you just to put it in the can. It costs you just to process it. Then it costs you just to distribute it. All those costs and like once once I own the camera and the media, the cost of making it, that cost is gone. I never have to incur those costs again. That wasn't the case when we were shooting on film, you know. Um, and then and then film as the only way of doing it. Now that film is a tool, celluloid. When I say film, talk about celluloid. Now it's a tool. Yeah, there are people who want to use that tool. But when it was the bread and butter was the only way you could make it. Yeah, no, not a lot of people were willing to roll the dice. So diversity and equity in in the diversity that we see in the types of images that we see in the stories that we're investing. Part of that is the technology has made the risk factor much, much lower. So it doesn't cost Netflix anything to say, okay, I'm going to give you five million dollars to make this TV show because it's because the the 5 million can go in now the 5 million can go into like getting the right star the 5 million can go into other things the 5 million is not just going and just just putting the film on
0: mhm but it doesn't seem like the the lower cost of making films it may go in, into investing to get the right star but there are existing pay equities with regard to race and gender as well so um, I don't think it solved all the issues that it could solve and that we spend less money to make it, um, but we're not passing that money on to a woman or a, a black actor in the way we might, a white actor.
1: The, the, what's interesting about sexism and racism and white supremacy, sexism and how it's related to white supremacy is that we are all the perpetual, we all perpetuate it, and we're all the victims. So the problem is everybody doesn't believe that a woman could direct something. <laughs> It's not just men. It's everybody. Mm -hmm. Women don't believe that. You know what I mean? And until we start to get a point where we are all letting go of those things, it's going to continue to be harder. I think the other things we all have to adjust uh, to women in leadership. We just have to adjust. You just got to adjust. That means it's just going to sound different. It's going to feel different. You're going to react to it different. The most important thing is that you have to be aware of your reactions and that you don't. You don't allow your reactions to uh, women leadership to to ruin the product Mm -hmm. because your job is to help facilitate the product. So if you have a woman leader at the top, you have to adjust yourself so that we can all make the product. Um, And that's what I'm hyper aware of as a cisgendered male is that I have to I am constantly battling my own subconscious um, biases and prejudices. And sexism against women. So whenever I have a, a a woman as a director, I'm always evaluating how I react to what the suggestions that they make, how I react, even in conversations. What, am I interrupting too much? Um, you know, everything I'm constantly evaluating. Uh, and that doesn't mean that I'm like, I'm on it. Sometimes I'm f-ing up in the middle of, I'm interrupting. I'm like, I just interrupt. Like I didn't even let the woman finish the thing. What the f- am I doing? You know? And I have to learn. Oh, geez. Okay. Just.
0: Because it takes it takes time to unlearn. And that that goes, we all all have these internalized views, even if it's things that are detrimental to us. I believe that internalized white supremacy. I believe black people can have that as well. I believe women can have uh, gender bias. Right. That is totally discriminatory to us. But because when that's what you've been socialized to believe and that's what you've seen, it's very easy to adopt that and that you can't get rid of that overnight.
1: I would certainly feel like on the racial, I certainly do not feel it. I'm definitely more at ease with Black directors. Mm-hmm. I am on pins and needles when I'm working with women directors. I'm hyper-conscious of myself mm. uh, just to make sure. I am certainly more comfortable with women directors. I'm like way more comfortable. I think a whole preening hyper masculine thing happens when I'm dealing with male directors on my part and possibly on their part. It's one of the things I'm, I'm definitely afraid of. So every time I work with male directors, I'm always looking for the fight. Like I'm like, are we going to fight? Like, you know what I'm saying? I don't feel that sense with women directors, not because I don't think, because I know that I will back down from the fight with a woman. Really? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Cause I don't wanna be that cat that's the that's fighting with the woman director. <laughs> like I don't wanna be I don't wanna be so I feel like I will be you will walk all over me as a woman director because I'm I'm afraid to to have that to to push back too hard. I have certainly pushed back too hard. Like I just left a job where I was like I, I can't work for you because I don't feel like you know what you're doing. And I don't I don't feel like I'm being sexist and saying that. Like I you know. So I know I will push back, um, but I'm very, very aware, very aware, both when I work for men and women I'm, for different reasons, for different reasons. I feel like my ears are a little bit more open when I work with women because I'm I'm trying not to be, I'm like hyper uh, aware of my own sexism. So I'm like, OK, like, am I listening? Am, did I hear what, what she said? Am I paying attention? Uh, I'm trying not to be paternalistic. And then I'm hyper aware when I work with men because I'm trying to I'm trying to manage my own. Uh, I feel like a testosterone thing happens and two men get in the same room. So on the film set. So I'm 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 like making sure that I'm not because I'm hyper aware of my position on the set. So I'm, I need to make sure that I never go above the bounds of the cinematographer. Like I can't take over the production. I can't bully the director. But I'm hyper aware. I'm not going to let this director bully me. So that's Mm -hmm. so. So I take there's that natural tension and then you add um, race and gender on top of that. And it complicates it for me. For me personally, it complicates it. It's a constant tweaking, you know. So um, I'm also aware that when I work with women directors, they're aware of the gender dynamics. So they're trying to some women are trying to like exert leadership without being bossy. Right. Like I can tell they're hyper aware of that. Like they are they're managing with how they're saying something when they're not happy, um, but making sure they get what they need. So I know because they're aware of that and I'm aware of that, that we're always going to meet in the middle. We're going to we're going to accommodate each other. You know, so sometimes we're battling who's going to accommodate more for the other person, you know. And so we find so that's why it's more pleasant in that way, because we're we are both constant consciously trying to do our job and to exert whatever we're supposed to exert, but also to not create conflict in most mm-hmm. cases. So then that makes it easier.
0: Understood.
1: In in so, that way, but I'm still hyper aware, like, because I'm trying not to be paternalistic in that, in accommodating, I'm trying not to be paternalistic. Mm-hmm.
0: So shifting gears a bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day.
1: Um, parenting is probably, you know, just, trying to be a better parent to my son and my daughter. Those are the days that I've probably been extraordinary on an on an ordinary day. Those Is that
0: because of internalized pressure that you have? that you feel like you're not being the best parent that you could be? Absolutely. Is it a, a think, desire to just continue to strive to improve?
1: I think I've already identified w- ways I've failed as a parent that I'm trying to sort of make up, you know, um, as my children get older, trying to make the transitional relationship, uh, the traditional or the The typical relationship you've had for your child from just protector and leader to like recognizing this person as a as a human being that's going to make their own choices that you now have to you just have to honor their choices and you have to become more of an advisor to the the transitional advisor role. you know, and, and you want to you want to have influence, but you want to give them the autonomy. So you're trying to develop a space where you're letting them know that what you want to do is you just want to be able to give advice. You want them to to weigh your advice that you don't want to impose upon them. So transitioning into that space is hard, mm-hmm. um, but it can be very rewarding you know, can be super, super rewarding. Like, uh, I I, it, I am always relaying to my children every time I have a moment that I remember that I had with my parents and I'm now having with them, I tell them that. I was like, oh, I just said this to you. And that's exactly what my mom said to me. Like, that's so funny. That's interesting. You know, I, I you know, after, especially after I got married, after, I had it was weird. After I got married, I spent a lot of time with my parents. I started like hanging out at their house all the time. Like, all of a sudden, I want to have dinner with my, you know, make my mom make me dinner and all this stuff. And I, I don't know if it was a matter of like, because you know, I was now officially out of their house. All of a sudden, I wanted to be in their house, you know? So, mm-hmm. and I would, I I'd, I was like, man, you know, my parents just, they were just always so happy to see me. I'm just like, Okay, I just saw you last week. Like, I don't get it. I didn't understand what it was. Now I understand they were reacting to the fact that they could see me as an adult. And it was amazing because they still have the memory of me as a child. Like it's still fresh. And that's the case with me. I can still remember, I still see my children as my children, but I see them also as these, these budding adults. And it's fascinating. It's a, and then you're proud. You know, you get very proud, you get very emotional. Um, and your kids have no context for this thing that you're having. So every time you see them, you got to hug them extra. You know? And what's funny is my, uh, my children are sort of used to it. Like my son, one time I just went up to him and started hugging him. He just, okay. He's like, yes. Okay. This is the daily hug. I see what it is. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Get it, get it, go ahead, get it out of your system. All right. Okay. Enough. Okay. So he stopped resisting and he used to just Get off me. Get off. What are you doing? But now he's like, OK, yeah, OK, oh, get the hug. Get it. OK, are uh, you good now? You good? OK, one more. OK, uh, okay. I, I know. I know you love me. I know. I know. You know, so he's indulging. And and it's but, it, but and I say to him, it's, like, it's because you don't have a context for what I'm experiencing and as like the minute you have the minute your kids get older, you're going to have a context. Because it's, it's like because I didn't feel that way when they were babies because they were also clingy, you know, mm-hmm. but now that they're older, they're not as clingy. There's a different sort of emotional relationship. So that's those are the days that I'm extraordinary on an ordinary day.
0: So before we let you get out of here, are there projects that you're currently working on or looking forward to that you can actually talk about?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a. Uh... There's a, a bunch of docs, uh, my creative partner and I, I have a creative partner, Melik Lamouba, and I have a producing partner, Caroline Onikunte. Caroline and I own Align Pictures together. Um, and Melik and I are just, we've been in, you know, LA just pitching, 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 pitching. We're very close to something that would be an extraordinary documentary, I think. And then, you know, he's constantly coming with new ideas. So we, we have two big doc ideas that we're... We we just came up he just came up with an idea that will be it if we can pull it off will be like in the realm of like a thirteenth. It'd be like mm. a thirteenth like it could have that kind of effect on the culture. Don't know if even if we make it, if it will, it has the potential. It's it's that, you know, it's that sort of groundbreaking in terms of black people and, and white supremacy. Um we have, you know, we have a couple, we have like you know, we have a couple A-list stars that that we've been developing projects for. Um, and we're getting closer and closer like every day to kind of um me personally, I'm I think I'm getting closer and closer to being seen in the business as a not just a great cinematographer. And I don't know what people call me consider me a great cinematographer, but but definitely a content creator. Like someone like, wait, you can like you can make a show, like you can write a show, like you can like, okay, you can produce something. Like, so I'm I'm definitely keen on transitioning um and not moving away from, but adding to my my palette. Um, while this business is hot and is paying attention to black folks, because it's one day it's gonna end. So you gotta have your properties established for when it ends, so you can continue making money um and find new ways. But yeah, I, I'm you know, Menelik and I are are constantly Come up, you know. He just finished a great script called Green. It's a heist movie. Um, It's his most access accessible script. So it's 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 the kind of script that somebody would just green light as it is. Very excited about that. and we've got this film after the game that's supposed to that's got Omar Dorsey and Simone Messick attached. And so we, we, we have a couple of projects that are like, you know, we're there, you know, we're just making like it's a it's a slog. You just have to make your way through the system. You mm-hmm. know, you have, to, you have to get these meetings in and you have to keep things going to continue to write, continue to develop projects. And so that's, yeah, that's what that's that's what we're doing. Um, I'm finishing a major, major doc very, very proud. It's a big cultural doc. It, like, you'll know, like you, when it comes out, you'd be like, Oh yeah, that's the doc that Hans is talking. I can't quite talk about it, but it's a, it's a big, when it hits, it'll hit, it'll hit. Um, and I feel like the work I've done visually is, is really, really good. It's like, it, it is a, it, it's a con like with 13th, I, I took these very buttoned up academics and put them against these industrial backgrounds. And I took this, this is a very painful subject, but I put our subjects against these very sunny backgrounds to kind of create a visual tension and contrast. So I'm very proud of, of the work. I think it's some of my best sort of interview work since 13, um, consistently across the board. So, um, I'm excited. We're going to, you know, we, we stopped production because of COVID and we'll continue, um, I think we start up like next month, and in about a month and a half, we'll finish. And then they'll they'll edit, and you'll hear about it. And and you know, that hopefully, it gets into Sundance, and then guess you know gets a distribution. So very excited! Like once it comes out, you'll know that that's the project I was talking about. So that's the next thing is probably going to come out.
0: That's exciting. And where can people find you online?
1: um You know, Menelik and I have a podcast called Back of the Theater Podcast. You can find us at Back of the or No, backseattheater.com, I think it is. I haven't been to the website in a while. Sorry, y'all. Yo. Um, and you can find us. You can find me at CineClass um, on all social media C I N E C L A S S. You can find Menlike at Moomba50 M U M B A 5 O. I do not do a lot of Instagram. So I've been so, I think the last time I tweeted it might have been six months from now six months ago. Um, I consume a lot of um, social media, but I don't produce a lot of social media. So um, don't expect to see anything interesting. But I, you know, sometimes every once in a while, I just go on a little rant. I want to rant against introverts um, because introverts are like the only personality type that are always bragging about being introverts. Like, Extroverts don't brag about being extroverts. Like we don't walk around, yo, I'm an extrovert. I can't wait to go out to the party. I'm such an extrovert. Oh my gosh, I'm so extroverted. Like can't wait to interact. Introverts are like, yo, I cannot wait to stay home. Y'all don't understand how much I want to stay home. I will say like introverts are the only ones who go online and do that. Like,
0: I think I don't think it's a bragging as an introvert. I'm going to say this and I don't talk about it online, but I don't think it's a bragging. I think it's this necessity. You feel like you have to explain yourself. We because don't. People don't right. understand when you get antisocial. No, we don't. We can we continue can, we can to debate we offline.
1: Let, let me help you. We don't care. OK, you didn't come to the party. Guess what? We're partying. We didn't notice. You know what I'm saying? We're not mad because we're still your friend, right? Like we kept the friendship, right? So you don't have to justify not coming out. You know what? You, we hey, know no, you.
0: Everybody doesn't feel that, Hans. You have those extroverts who don't understand why you don't want to be out and they hold it against you. So you could say you and your people don't care. But I think a lot of introverts feel the need to offer next. Nah, we You don't got to go down that road. You like don't it. have to go down that road.
1: Y'all like? Because that's the same way y'all like to be invited to stuff that you're going to say no to. Like, I heard somebody say that. I want to feel included. You're not included. You didn't yeah,
0: show. no. I don't care about the invite. I couldn't care less, but that's just me.
1: Um, and I love my uh, friends. You're the friend whose house I go to, who I know you're going to be home at 9 o'clock on a Friday. And so, you're like, you know what? I feel like staying in. I'm going to cook salmon for such and such because I know they're going to be home. And as, since we're friendly, you don't have to put any. You know, you just stay in your pajamas, or whatever. I'm just bringing the salmon. We gonna watch this movie, and then I'm gonna leave at like midnight because I know you're gonna be an auntie. So, it's, and then I don't mind. You see what I'm saying? Like. I you slot perfectly in my I don't need you to be the rah-rah party friend. So why y'all always gotta talk about how introverted you are?
0: Yeah, I think you just evolved, bro. Like there's so many intro (laughs) so many extroverts who like be taking shots at introverts just because they don't want to be at the club. Like it's so so kudos to you for understanding where people fit in your life. But but this is like now full circle moment in the in the interview, in that you understand that there are many different categories of people. Not not other people, not all people understand that. So. Look,
1: we're in the club with the extroverts. That's what I want to be with. I don't want to be in the club with the introvert. If I drag you out, as soon as we get there, you're going to complain or want to go home and ruin the night. Why would I invite you out? Why you would I do it. that to myself? You, like, can you can get it. Me. You could, like, my wife is an introvert. You know what I do? I just don't invite her to the club. Like, I just, because she don't want to go.
0: You have to figure have
1: it out. nights with her where I know I only want to be there for like an hour or two. So when she says, I'm ready to go, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go. When I know I want to be out all night, guess who I'm not coming with? You. Because you don't want to be there.
0: Not all extroverts get it. Not all extroverts God
1: bless her. She's okay on those nights that I want to be like, you know, go club for five hours. And she's like, all right, I'll put her to bed and then I go out. And then we don't have conflict because, you know, she's not trying to keep me home. I'm not trying to drag her out. And even when like, it's as simple as like, I can't even get her, like I like to make fires outside of my house. I have a fire pit. Sometimes I can't even like, I'm like, oh, let's go outside. She's like, no, I ain't going to I get my clothes on. The other night I was like, damn, I would have made a fire. But, you know, I didn't want to be out there alone. She's like, why didn't ask me? I was like, because you're going to say no. How you know I'm not going to say no? I was like, because you always say no. And I'm sick of hearing no. So I'm just not going to ask.
0: Listen, we've covered a plethora of <laughs> topics in this conversation. We've gone to many places during this time. Uh, but Brandon was right. I, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me as a guest.
0: So to our listeners, you know what to do if you are interested in learning. Listen, Hans is in the business. So if you even Google him, check out his IMDb. There's this work there that he's done. Um, he's been involved in many things, many projects that you know. So if you're interested in seeing his creative output, check that out, following following him online as well. You know, we encourage that. You enjoyed this episode, which will end up being two parts, I guarantee you. But if you've enjoyed them, go ahead, like, share, subscribe, comment, tell somebody about it. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delicia. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa, and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.